0: when the hurricane hit i was at home with my wife you know you could hear the sound of the wind of a hurricane is somewhat different it's more like a roar our house was flooded uh i mean we started seeing uh water coming from the ceiling uh there was a point when i was scared i was really scared you know running out of water and food and uh, i mean those are really scary things in the middle of such strong winds and you know you you see things flying and hitting and you realize that you know I, i don't control the situation i don't have any control of what's happening
1: is Finding Founders, I'm Samuel Donner, and today we're releasing the first of three episodes exploring Puerto Rico. So I traveled to San Juan, Puerto Rico a few weeks ago, and I was trying to understand why Puerto Rico's entrepreneurial community emerged more vibrant after the 2017 hurricanes, specifically Hurricane Maria. My question is, how can destruction sow the seeds of opportunity and growth? And our first interview is with Nelson, who was just describing the destruction that Hurricane Maria dealt to his hometown in Ponce, Puerto Rico. In spite of the tragedy that hit his community, I would say that hope still prevailed. And I would say that hope was a catalyst for positive change. Today, Nelson is the president of the Puerto Rico Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to the development of underprivileged communities in Puerto Rico. Nelson has spent much of his life engaging in humanitarian efforts. But his story, when marked by social injustice and family tragedy, didn't start there. It started with his father, the illegitimate son of a sugar plantation worker and the owner.
0: The economic structure of Puerto Rico rests on a highly specialized agricultural system. My grandmother, on my father's side, was the mistress of the guy who used to, to be the manager of the sugarcane plantation.
1: Sugarcane is king, the principal source of income.
0: So my father was a sugarcane cutter uh, until he was 16. He decided that he wanted a different life and, and, and he, he was gonna move to to the big city. That was Ponce. My father was a fast learner. He was very, very uh, self-taught person, but he studied a lot. He located in a black neighborhood in 1926 in the city of Ponce. And there was an opportunity uh, with the Ponce diamond work. And he was hired as a messenger just observing how diamonds were polished. Diamonds, diamonds and more diamonds. Then, if you want to learn that trade uh, as an apprentice, they will not give you diamonds. They'll give you ball bearings, which obviously burns much, much faster. And he became very skilled. Then he was promoted from being an apprentice, to being a polisher, then to be a maestro. The biggest diamond on Earth by that time was the Yonkers. And the Yonkers were cut in 12 pieces.
1: 25 years ago, one of the world's most famous diamonds, the
0: fabulous Yonkers stone arrived in America, the world's largest. It was discovered only the year before. And they selected the best 12 diamond polishers from the US and Puerto Rico. And he was one of them. So he went there. He stayed strict uh, security measures. The diamond was polished. I would say like in a month, but, uh, but he stayed there several years afterwards. Then he returned, and when he returned, he returned as the manager of the factory. That's how he ended up, you know, uh, being star diamond polisher. Nelson's father seems like a prime example of the self-taught man.
1: Someone who changed his life for the better through hard work. As an illegitimate son, he was born into a harsh environment, almost like a chunk of graphite buried miles beneath the Earth's surface. But these intense conditions, coupled with his own perseverance and a willingness to learn, molded this piece of soft rock into a glistening gem, one that would bring joy to many lives, including Nelson's. Look closely enough, and you will see the parallels between Nelson's story and his father's. And although the sources of pressure weren't identical, they grew up with similar social expectations.
0: We learned to be hardworking people. We also learned that um, our future, there was some sort of leadership position because my father was a leader in his field. But at the same time, we were not participating of what we saw at the time, the good life in Puerto Rico. In the few occasions that we went places in the city, we felt that uh, we didn't belong. In the narrative of of that culture, you knew what were the places, the social clubs, the parties where... you could go and were those spaces where you, you knew that you wouldn't be admitted. Because these were uh, clubs, schools, um, restaurants that would exclude black people and poor people. So by looking at those parallel tracks, you keep asking yourself, why are we not walking together through life? Why are we going to separate churches? What are we going to uh, different schools? Uh, anytime those two tracks do intersect, uh, then all the cultural defenses just go up and, and manifest itself in the form of, of bullying, the racist bullying. Nelson's childhood
1: experiences as a black person in Puerto Rico brings to mind the stories of black Americans in the segregated South.
0: We believe that our problem is one not a violation of civil rights, but a violation of human rights.
1: Although I knew a bit about the history of racism in America, my classes didn't quite cover Puerto Rico, so we did a bit of digging. Racism in Puerto Rico has a long history. But I think the event that wedded Puerto Rican and American racial history occurred in 1898.
0: Modern structure symbolized Puerto Rico's progress during 43 years under the American flag. In the realization of which its two million peace-loving people are
1: cooperating patriotically to forestall the spread of totalitarian tyranny to the shores of the Americas. The United States invaded Puerto Rico, upheld the racial hierarchy, and accentuated anti-Afro-Puerto Rican sentiments. What are some of the reasons that you found Puerto Ricans choose to identify as white on the census? As upper-class white people entered Puerto Rico, they made deals with the U.S. industrialists and supported policies that violated civil rights and exploited the Afro-Puerto Rican people.
0: And some people uh, consider this to be the vestige of colonialism. There was a policy known as Gracias a Sacar where you could actually petition the Spanish Empire to be classified as white because if you were black that meant there were certain professions that you couldn't hold and opportunities that you couldn't have very similar to the United States
1: and And Nelson had to live with that systemic racism with the guidance of his father Nelson developed solid principles that pushed him to defy the confines of this system built to break him education would be his vehicle to escape societal limits and his family provided a safe environment in which he could pursue that
0: I had a very close relationship with my mother and my sister. But then the figure that I saw doing most of the of the maternal roles was my older sister. We came to this world uh, into two cohorts. So there were 17 between the first and the last. So, you know, that gang of siblings really became like a a, a protective squad. So it was an interesting way uh, uh, of being raised. Uh, In a way, way that's that's, that's my concrete experience of being raised uh, by the village. Let me go back to why my mother perceived threats in the environment. I have an uncle who died uh, because he was, he just jumped into the trolley without pain. I mean, must have been two cents. So he was hit by a police who saw him uh, with, with a stick. You now the police hit him in the back, uh, then you know, uh, his lungs collapsed, and he died. <laughs> So we grew with these stories that there are threats out there. So when the band came together, we were a protective clan uh, because, you know, your, your whole life uh, could be in peril.
1: Stories like this one of racially charged violence against the Cologne family led Nelson's mother to shelter him shelter him from the ideology of a system that not only aspired to stifle his success, but was actively killing people that looked like him. But a sheltered childhood wasn't necessarily bad. I think it served to strengthen the bonds he had with his siblings and parents. And nurturing these relationships undoubtedly bolstered his integrity and sense of community. His home was a place that allowed him to thrive, allowed him to grow up unencumbered by the worst of racism. He didn't have to worry as much about the color of his skin. He could just focus on personal growth. But sometimes the family couldn't protect itself. You get into the University of Puerto Rico and then pretty soon after you start, your father has that heart attack.
0: Yeah, it was a complicated experience it was painful i mean he was a he was a healthy guy. He was in the pinnacle of his career and all of a sudden all came down. So we moved out from our house to a smaller house. the boys in the family. we started working with him in the shop. Uh, my brother was already working with him. We were worried that he was going to die. We were worried that we were turning poor. We didn't have the income to keep the type of life that we were used to live. I moved, for example, from private schools to public schools. My brother remained working at the factory. My two other brothers started working with him on a regular basis. So our whole life structure was transformed. At the same time, 1963, uh, Kennedy was killed. Here is a news bulletin from the CBC television news service. Here is a picture of President Kennedy and his wife taken just before he was shot today in Dallas, Texas. So that was a major shock wave in our family. So that was the backdrop of my admission to the university. You know, very times were very convulsive. The nationalist movement in Puerto Rico was on the rise. They were very afraid of that. Puerto Rico had at that point two strong forces. One was pro-statehood, the second one was pro-independence. And Puerto Rico was trying to find a way to move forward. The Nationalist Party evolved from a party to a liberation force. And in the 1950s, they declared a revolution in Puerto Rico. Uh, They had armed confrontation. Then, revolution and the attempted assassination of Puerto Rico's governor. They took over the town of Ayuya. They raised their flag. Bullets ripped through that flag and through the palace windows behind, only just missing Governor Luis Marine. Forty were killed in the course of the uprising, which was ascribed to communists as well as So all the families were highly concerned by the consequences of the uh, nationalist movement. So my family was really scared. Needless to say, the social structure around Nelson's life had shifted
1: drastically. Puerto Rico's nationalist movement 13 years before was still sending ripples throughout the island. Then there was JFK's assassination, the death of a man who had been so crucial to the vitality of Puerto Rico. But what shook him to the core was his father's heart attack and its unceasing consequences. An important takeaway from this anecdote is that life can change in an instant. And no matter how good you have it, reality spares no one. Nelson couldn't mourn the past. He had to look towards the future. And the future was education. But that future was not without complications.
0: I got good grades in, in school. So I went to the school uh, counselor and I just said, you know, I need my papers to so fill, fill, fill those, those forms and uh, send it to the University of Puerto Rico. And then she said, no, I will not give it to you because you will never be admitted to the University of Puerto Rico. And that that really was like a dart in my my heart. I mean, uh, we grew thinking uh, we need to go to the university. We need to have a profession. She was a gatekeeper and she was blocking black students to apply to the University of Puerto Rico. So, how did we go around that, my mother? Basically, she said, if she doesn't give you the documents, the forms to apply, I will get it myself. So she got the documents to apply to the university, and I did, I had to do it all by myself. The University of Puerto Rico was the best university, having me admitted to the university. So I remember the joy, I remember the celebration, and the concern as well. I mean, I was coming from Ponce to San Juan, so I was crossing the island. I was, uh, you know, coming to the other side of the island.
1: College meant opportunity, a chance to think for himself, develop his own moral judgment. His mother had instilled in him this idea that education is a right, not a privilege. And education was a push he needed to get to the other side of the tracks, to leave the shackles of racism that had previously smothered his progress. His family had given him an opportunity to grow, but now he had to stand on his own two feet, decide how he wanted to combat the societal barriers that plagued people that grew up like him. Instead of succumbing to violence, Nelson took a different route. You studied sociology. I imagine you're trying to understand that. So I guess like, like how did you go about understanding your, your roots and your country?
0: So I, I went into my college life with all those questions in my head. So I started flirting with the uh, pro-independence movement when I was in high school. So I thought I was, uh, you know, I had a lot of curiosity. Uh, They have this aura of uh, local heroes. Essentially, I became a pacifist. I I became a conscientious objector of the Vietnam War. Operation Pershing on the Bong Son Plain in South Vietnam. A major offensive drive by U.S. First Cavalry soldiers determined to seek, find, and rout a huge Viet Cong force from the area. And, and I was highly influenced by Martin Luther King thinking. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills, Georgia. So while I transit through the university, I realized that I preferred the non-violent option to the violent option because um, I didn't see, you know, the um, the chances for winning. Uh, winning, in my mind, was... Political power at that at that point. So the connection is you have you you have an armed struggle because eventually you will win, uh, and once you will you win, you 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 will acquire political power. So I was thinking all the time that's not the way to go. For me, it was those were really formative years. Uh, those years in college.
1: Leaving his town and going to university gave Nelson fresh perspective on the concept of community. Nelson's philosophical enlightenment in college reminds me of a quote by Martin Luther King. The function of education is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically. Intelligence plus character. That is the true goal of education. The knowledge that Nelson accrued certainly helped him strengthen his moral character. He began to see that community involves not just family, but society as a whole. And being part of a functioning society means working with people with vastly different beliefs and backgrounds. Nelson did his best to work harmoniously with these people, just as he did in choir, singing alongside others with different interpretations of the same pieces. Embracing these differences allowed Nelson to stop viewing the outside world as a threat and instead seek to understand it in its flawed but beautiful entirety. He'd spread the idea that social change can occur peacefully across the world.
0: We went to Jamaica. uh, That was um, my second trip out of uh, Puerto Rico for a student Christian movement convening. So I came first in contact with theologians that they were mostly in the theology of liberation movement. Basically it was God's mandate is to side with the poor. Uh, God's mandate is a mandate of service and devotion to the other person. And that encounter in in Jamaica was really nice for me. You know, I met a lot of people. I I uh, I met you know girls. Uh, oh, did uh, you? Yeah. <laughs> On the way back, uh, I, I was traveling with a girl that I thought um, she was beautiful and kind and uh, and soft. So I've been sitting by her for the last 51 years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it went very well. <laughs> so it went very well. It, it, it really went well. On that trip, Nelson met
1: his life partner, the woman who would become his wife. Though this is momentous in itself, I think another important aspect of this trip was perspective. Nelson altered and expanded his worldview and cemented this idea of caring for the world. If he was expected to provide for this community in Jamaica, if his duty was to care for the poor even in countries he had no attachment to, then coming home must have sparked an intense drive to pursue social justice and community development on his home island of Puerto Rico.
0: So I applied uh, to the Puerto Rico planning board, and they made me the director of their youth program. I was more inclined to see community organizing. I was inclined to see myself embedded in, in community work. So finally, I saw in that concept of community uh, something tangible that I could to work with. Finally was able to go into communities, work with communities, work with
1: slums. You were going into the communities and trying to help and take action. What was the action that actually occurred?
0: We started organizing people and uh, I just met this lady and, and she said, uh, we want a basketball court. Uh, so I said, well, you are on my turf. Uh, if you want a basketball court, we'll build a basketball court. So basically there was one, so we just fixed it. We just renovated it. it, it it's, it's a very unique sense of satisfaction, mostly because I helped people do it. I supported people in their process of, of, of doing that. It is pretty much like uh, the birth of new life. I mean, uh, there, there was nothing and then all of a sudden there is this, you know, real nice things being used by the young people in the barrio and, and their mothers and fathers are excited.
1: Sitting in a white office building did not spell change for Nelson, but repaving basketball courts did. He wants to contribute to his community with his own two hands, physically immersing himself in that community and his work. And Nelson wasn't worried about getting the glitz and the glory. To him, community improvement is rewarding in itself. Many think community improvement is about beautification, but really, it's about unification. It isn't about discarding the less desirable parts, but it's about reinvigorating them. And Nelson would go ahead to reinvigorate many different parts of his community, But soon, a virus would
0: disrupt his piecemeal approach to philanthropy. The AIDS pandemic sort of started becoming a a, a, a public health crisis in Puerto Rico. We here at the foundation, we funded uh, the first hospice for dying patients, but then When you see that, when you come in contact with that, and when you see people dying because of a preventive illness, uh, you realize that you sort of try to save the victim after they are drowned. He knew he was providing tangible services,
1: but he still felt disconnected. Like the projects he was doing was just solely to do projects. He didn't want to just patch holes. He wanted to create lasting solutions that would span generations but his efforts would be tabled as he faced a more immediate threat to his community. We'll be right back after this break. Adrian and I have been grinding on some Finding Founders work. And uh, I don't know about you, Adrian, but I'm a little hungry. Dude, I'm starving. I'm pretty hungry for some McDonald's fries, but I don't have the secret recipe and I kind of want to make it at home. So let's see if we can get that secret recipe. Hello, thank you for calling in from my McDonald's. It's Teddy, how can I help you? I was wondering how you guys go about making your fries. So I'm not really sure what you're asking, sir. Like like what, what is your process for making fries? Like how does how do you guys make it? Now unveiling the McDonald's fries secret recipe. We get natural cut
0: natural fries. Cut
1: fries. And we cook them in a deep fryer. Approximately three minutes. Well, they get raised out of our baskets. Raised out of baskets. And they're drained for 10 seconds. 10 seconds. 9. Eight. They're loaded into uh, our fry bay. They're salted. So much salt. And then they get loaded into uh, fry cartons and put into bags of food for our lovely customers. Lovely customer. Oh, that actually uh, sounds pretty simple. It sounds like almost as simple as like sharing a podcast help <laughs> uh yeah, I mean, it just sounds super simple like you can like share a, a podcast by like taking a screenshot or tagging finding founders and posting it to the social media of your choice.
0: Uh, well that's probably not what I'm gonna do um, <laughs> but if the owner of this particular chain wants to do that then.
1: I'm sure that he will. Oh, he will? I'm sure that he would
0: if that's something he
1: chose to do. I heard you say, my word is my bond and I promise through the highest mountaintops in all the land that I will tell (laughs) my manager to do this very thing or death. Do you not remember that? I am the manager, and I said that if the owner chooses to do that,
0: he will inform us and it will happen. It will
1: happen. All right. Well, thank you for making it happen, and I appreciate your time. So now you know the secret McDonald's fry formula and how to share finding founders. So share this podcast with a friend. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Now, back to the podcast.
0: Hurricane Irma is barreling towards the Caribbean with winds reaching 180 miles per hour. So, when Irma hit Puerto Rico, I mean, you just uh, hunker down, cover yourself. The Category 5 storm has prompted hurricane warnings in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So, uh, I was thinking at that point, as a foundation, we are going to do what? we have always done which is we will activate the re- the recovery fund we have all the protocols in place and we will support communities we work with and, and we move forward but then uh, while I was trying to organize those uh, thoughts Maria hit us we were not ready for the number of people who died when the hurricane hit i was at home with my wife our house was flooded Uh, i mean we started seeing uh water coming from the ceiling uh there was a point when i was scared i was really scared you know running out of water and food and uh, i mean those are really scary things you know, every, everything is disorganized, everything falls, everything. It's difficult, it's difficult to communicate. In the middle of such strong winds and you know, you, you see things flying and hitting and uh, you, you, you realize that, you know, I, I don't control the situation. I don't have any control of what's happening. So let's sit tight and let's hope. All of a sudden, uh, your neighborhood becomes like a ghost town. Houses are broken, windows are broken, things that were inside, spaces are out, falling into pieces. To me, it creates um, the profound sense of sadness. Everything is destroyed.
1: The bustling and joy-filled streets that he called home were replaced by broken windows, uprooted trees, and a flooded city. The world he knew, the community that he helped build, was literally turned upside down in less than a day. For Nelson, someone who dedicated the better part of his life to ameliorating communities, this force of nature literally undid all of his hard work in a blink of an eye, and I can imagine that would be demoralizing. His self-worth was tied to the vitality of his community. This would knock Nelson down, but he wouldn't stay down for long.
0: Another colleague wrote me a single note saying, I know that you have been hit hard, but create strategic pathways for whatever you're going to do. Otherwise, you will exhaust yourself. I devoted like six hours just writing ideas of uh, how the foundation can react to the situation. We came with very simple solutions and you can still see those around. One simple solution was access to water. So we decided and we're going to do these in three phases. The first phase is having our organizations, we're gonna provide them with water purifiers. Secondly, we support organizations that were digging water holes. And thirdly, then we decided to start working with a water system owned and managed by the community. So all those three stages were ways of providing access to that critical resource. For eight months, almost half of the island was without access to electricity. So basically, we followed the same logic. First, we distributed lanterns. Secondly, we distributed about 80 generators. And thirdly, we started working around the idea of solar communities. Still, to this day, three years later, those solar of communities are still beacons of light for the rest of the island. Nelson was looking to the future.
1: In a way, Hurricane Maria spurred him to action, pushed him to create permanent changes in his community. After all, Puerto Rico was his home. But what constitutes a home? Some say a home is physical entities that make up your house, and others say it's the people you surround yourself with. For Nelson, it's both. Puerto Rico was the place he grew up, the place he made his fondest memories. It was also the place where he endured some of his greatest tragedies. But the streets, the people, and the culture have shaped him into the humanitarian he is today. And Nelson wasn't going to stop at water purifiers and solar communities. was going to tackle any disaster that would come towards Puerto Rico. And the next pressing issue was COVID.
0: We learned from Maria for this to be resilient in the long term, for this to be sustainable, communities needs to have access, needs to have the knowledge of the management of the resource, and needs to have ownership. So we took those three concepts and when COVID hit, we started looking with the same thinking. Let's develop strategic framework to deal with this. And I wrote a document I called the Strategic Redirection of the Foundation. One will look at that and saying to contain this virus, we need community education by the community, with the community. The second set of activities is those communities need money, need investment. They need investment for the personal protective gear. They need investment for food, for creating the conditions where people can have access to health services. Thirdly, we identified resources of the community. We have in almost every community a nurse who does the work of doing the initial screening. And fourthly, we create a large alliance in Puerto Rico. We have like over 30 allies. Uh, And basically the notion is let's all the allies zero in into not having one person who died in the age bracket of 65 and over. We started that in March, almost eight months later. We don't have one single death due to COVID in that age range. Community contact tracing, community education, access to health services.
1: Nelson had a plan. But even with a plan, he still needed a community, a group of people who were willing to help him turn his vision into a reality. Sure, social distancing and wearing face masks played a part in containing the spread of COVID in Puerto Rico. But I think more importantly, it was the unity with which Nelson and his comrades approached the situation. Creating lasting change in the community is a group effort. It's a mindset, a culture of togetherness that will create a movement. What advice would you give your younger self, your 20 year old self, that's maybe dipping your toes in those movements. What advice would you give that person to have like real impact within a community?
0: There needs to be a clear vision of what is the end goal? What is the new Puerto Rico that we want to build? Having those pathways, that vision would be my my advice. Don't rush. Think a little bit and, and, and you will get there.
1: Nelson is intensely community driven. In a way that's incredibly unique. He isn't driven by materialism or self-aggrandizement. He has this innate drive to do good, to make a positive impact in his community. So many of us have this I mentality, this desire to work hard to better our lives. But Nelson constantly thinks in terms of we. From helping middle schoolers to combating COVID, Nelson has always had his community's best interest at heart. But I think what I've learned about community from Nelson is that it can start small. When Nelson built those basketball courts, when he was providing the relief for the hurricane, those projects started with conversations. He asked, "What do you need?" Sometimes that question is all it takes to create change now more than ever, I think we should ask our friends, our neighbors, our community that simple question. What do you need? From there, we can create an answer together and create something beautiful. Create a community. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our editing lead is Adrian Thapia with the support from Joseph Cho, Eli Lauren, Matt Fernandez, Damir Gold,
0: Spencer Khan,
1: Sophia Donner, and Shannon O'Halloran. Our script writing team lead is Joyce Mock with support from
0: Avneesh Sengupta, Prerika Chawla, Mitchell Lin, Gemma Brandwolf, Elizabeth Bowen, and Sharon Chen. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lin with support from
1: Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Le, Alice Yao, Ankita
0: Numbior, and Jamil Swayce. Our design and social media team lead is Annie Liu with support from Phoebe
1: Sajor, <laughs> Tiffany Dang,
0: Rick Liu. Ayla Erickson,
1: Shruti Ramanand, Ling Hu,
0: and James Barton.
1: To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.